of Eden or Chalcedon. All three are uh, entirely legitimate, and whichever you use sometimes depends on which university you went to. The name comes from a small town in Asia Minor, not too far from Constantinople, where a council of the Christian Church was held in A.D. 451. The great work of that council, which should be in every history book, but which is not because the history textbooks are written by anti-Christians, was to set forth the biblical doctrine of Christ as very God of very God and very man of very man, truly God and truly man. Two natures in perfect union without confusion. Now, what Chalcedon's council did was to set forth that Jesus Christ is alone Lord and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. But any other claim to be the link between heaven and earth, either by a church or by a state, is invalid. Because at that time, you remember, the Roman emperors were claiming to be God. And later the church claimed to be the voice of God on earth and the continuation of the incarnation. Chalcedon stood out against that very clearly and said that Christ alone is the link between God and man. There is none other way under heaven by which men can be saved than Jesus Christ. So today, when we have the state again claiming to be God, not saying it in so many words, but claiming total power over man, we thought first we've got to withstand the totalitarian claims of the state and set forth the total claims of Jesus Christ. And we have to work out the principles, the fundamentals of Christian reconstruction in every area of life and thought. This is what we're trying to do. This is why, for example, we have men working in various fields here and there across the country in philosophy, in economics, in the area of music, mathematics, that's one thing we're very proud of. If you're interested in math, in our first issue of the journal, Dr. Vern Fortress, who took his PhD in math at Harvard, has written on uh, God and mathematics, for what does God have to do with numbers? Then in the foundations of Christian scholarship, he has dealt with mathematics, pointing out, unless you believe in the God's scripture and in the doctrine of Trinity, no mathematics is possible. Uh, it is a vast math that he's dealing with there. It's so important in that day that uh, graduate students who had heard about it and seen uh, little snatches of uh, some of the advanced proofs of it were writing to us anxiously. Uh, wanting to know when the book would be out. It's a tremendous study. Very important. Well, that's the kind of thing we want to do, so that any serious Christian in math will have that as the fundamental principles of a biblical approach to mathematics. We want to do that for every field.
Incidentally, I think I saw a car come up, so... Uh, yes, here they come. The question is, what kind of work have we done in the area of biological sciences? And physical sciences. Nothing yet. Uh, we have two things we need to do before we can work in many fields. First, to find uh, the funds so that we can get someone to do it, and then find the right person who will deal with the basic theory and the basic principles from a biblical perspective. Now, we have someone in the field of music who's going to do a magnificent piece of work there. And that's an important area. You know, we forget that uh, in the Bible, part of the tide went to support musicians. Because music was considered so basic to uh, the faith and to the life of faith. So that uh, many of the psalms are composed, uh, as you will see in the heading, for the choir and for the singers. Come on in, we haven't actually started. Just make yourself comfortable somewhere. There's a chair right here, there's one there. Here's one right over here in the corner. And you see, one of our problems today is that all our music comes from the wrong source. So the church music today, whether it's the more formal type of church music or gospel music, is predominantly influenced by secular music. And the result is that uh, this humanism which thrives in our midst rather than the faith. Music is extremely important, but it's a neglected area. We hope to do some fundamental rethinking there. In fact, we have someone working for his doctorate right now in the field of music, uh, as well as someone else who's going to do a definitive study of the whole history of music in terms of biblical presupposition. It's just a case of finding the right man and having the fun. We're really a shoestring operation, but we're having uh, a worldwide influence already. In fact, I've had two letters uh, this week, one from a uh, university professor in Scotland and the other from a minister in Alaska, both of which whom want to come and study here to rethink their fundamental position. I also had a letter last week from a member of parliament in South Africa who's very excited about our thinking. People do want to rethink every area of life and thought in terms of the Word of God. And in this respect, uh, we are unique. In fact, the week before last, someone uh, who's a television commentator called and he said we were the only group he knew of that was having an impact in a positive way in the world of Christian thought. Because we were the only ones who were rethinking 
things in terms of a biblical perspective, in terms of a world my view. How's it coming? Will they, are they you know what exactly means? Yes. Christian reconstruction means rebuilding in every area of life in terms of biblical presupposition. Biblical presupposition. Now, to cite one example. In the Bible, you do not have such a thing as prison sentences. All you have in the Bible is somebody being kept in custody pending a trial. No prison sentences. What would you have instead of prison sentences? Restitution. If you stole, let us say, $100, you have to restore $100. If you stole a sheep, you have to restore fourfold. An ox, fivefold. You see, the restitution has to be in terms of the nature of the offense. So it was either double up to fivefold. Restitution always. Now, if you were an incorrigible criminal or an incorrigible delinquent, you were executed. It was that simple. So shall you put iniquity out of the land. Now, this is a physical pattern. What we do today is to subsidize the criminal. He robs you and then you're taxed to support him in prison. <laughs> There's no restitution. And he comes out. Now, Ed Powell, our Southeast staff member, was for nine years uh, on a police force, a fingerprint expert, and he can tell you he quit because he was spending more time preparing the case against the criminals than they were spending in prison. So, uh, you see what biblical reconstruction would do here. All we have to do is to go to the Word of God, study it, see its implications, and we have a program. We have, uh, besides just the implementation program, um, sorry, do you have a permanent goal, in other words, how, uh, a long, a long range, in other words, perhaps that is to incorporate or inculcate these principles into, into American civilization? Oh, yeah. For example, I have written Institutes of Biblical Law, which is a big thick book of about a thousand pages. We're out of copies at present, so we don't have them here. But uh, if you come back again, we hope to have some more copies here in about a week and a half. Now, it's interesting, uh, the publisher thought that book was going to wreck his reputation, it was going to, he was going to go bankrupt on it. The printing sold out in seven months and it's now in its third printing. Some of the most enthusiastic readers of it are in Congress. Now, I've spoken on biblical law, perhaps next time I'll speak on biblical law if you're interested. Some of the basic principles of it. I've spoken on it to churchmen and to ministers, and they say, well, it sounds wonderful, but it isn't practical. When I spoke to legislators, as I have two, three times, they told me, nothing else works. Maybe it's time we try God's law. Quite an interesting difference. Everybody out? Yeah, I'm set up in jail.
that in the next 10 years, the main political battle in the United States would be between Christianity and anti-Christianity. And that everything would be done to disguise the fact that this was the real issue. The politicians would do everything to avoid this confrontation. Now, of course, some candidates this year have been going around as ostensibly Christian candidates. Conlon of Arizona and Carter of Georgia. Although in their thinking there is often evidence that there is a blend of humanism and uh, Christianity. The issue is a critical one, however, and it will not go away. The battle is being joined in Ohio. What is involved? The issue is simply this. Who is Lord? Christ or Caesar? We do not understand the New Testament unless we grasp this fundamental fact, that the great proclamation of the New Testament is this, and it's the culminating sentence of St. Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost. This same Jesus, whom ye crucified, is both Lord and Christ. St. Peter is followed in this by St. Paul, who over and over again takes up the great proclamation of Pentecost. Jesus is Lord. Now, that was a dangerous statement to make, because what does Lord mean? Kurios in the Greek. God. The triumphant, world-conquering ruler. The warrior king. The one who has everything under his jurisdiction. The Lord is the one under whom all things exist. He provides the umbrella under whom creation, the arts, the sciences, politics, education, the family, everything exists. Now, as we look at the Roman Empire, we find, going back to the days of our Lord's birth, the fundamental principle of the Roman Empire was this. There is none other name under heaven by which men can be saved in the name of Augustus Caesar. Now, do you understand what it meant when St. Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is Lord. There is none other name under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Well, that was a declaration of war. This is not all. We do know as a result of very painstaking and dry-dust study of all the ancient documents about the early church, that whatever else was required of someone who presented himself for baptism, that adult had to make this statement, Jesus is Lord.
Jesus is the Lord. This was mandatory. No baptism apart from that confession. Now, what Rome was required of the Christians as they approached when they were arrested for this faith was this simple thing. Look, be reasonable. Rome isn't against Christianity. We're ready to allow you freedom to worship if you just apply for license as a licensed legal religion and pay a small tax. But go by that offer of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and you go free. Now that was it. Were they going to say, Jesus is Lord, or Caesar is Lord. Do you know that one of the Roman emperors actually in his private chapel set up a statue of Jesus? He was trying to indicate, look folks, what you all fighting about? I don't enjoy having you killed. I know to give Jesus his due. I hope you recognize him as one of the greatest men in history. I'll give you the right to say whatever you want about him. But Caesar is Lord. That's what the persecution of the early church was about. Isn't that a sad and a disastrous fact that there are actually Christians now who consider it wrong to say that Jesus is Lord. If you deny that Jesus is Lord, what you are then saying is that Jesus is my insurance agent. I'm buying fire insurance from him. If you are a Roman citizen in St. Peter's Day and St. Paul's Day, you would say that Caesar is Lord. Well, what about all the Roman gods? Oh, they were your insurance agents. If you were taking a sea voyage, you'd go to the temple of Castor and Paul. If you were having a love affair, you'd go to the temple of Venus, and you'd buy insurance. You'd make a gift of so much, and you'd say, Now, I expect so much in return. If you don't deliver, I'll patronize somebody else. They actually do it. They didn't worship those gods. They went to them for insurance. To deny that Jesus is Lord, Jesus then only provides you fire insurance. And that's not Christianity. Now what did it mean? When beginning in Germany and then coming into this country under Horace Mann, James G. Carter, Charles Sumner, and others, all the Italians, that the state control and support of education was proposed. They made no bones about it. The idea was that the generations to come should confess that the state is Lord, the state is man's savior. <clears throat> there is an established religion today 
in the United States and in the schools of these United States, and it is humanism, the worship of man. Man is Lord. Man in the form of the organized state is Lord. Now, a Christian school to be truly a Christian school must say, therefore, not Caesar, not the state, not man, but Jesus is Lord. Therefore, every subject we teach must manifest a Christian world and life view. That there is no error of life and thought that is not to be governed by the Word of God. I mentioned earlier the minimum standards for the Ohio Elementary School. Well, some people will say, now what in the world would be different about science teaching in a Christian school and in a public school? Why? The instruction in a public school is uh, about our physical universe and the instruction in a Christian school is about our physical universe. So what are you talking about? Well, of course, there's a very obvious fact, evolution versus creation. But this is not all. When you come to their philosophy for the sciences here, they never once mention knowledge of a real world out there. Never once. Now, that doesn't seem possible to you. When you read your science textbooks in college or learn in school, you thought a real world out there, an orderly world, a law world. No. They say we are teaching knowledge of the sciences and scientific thought. Not about the physical universe. Why? Why does this statement never mention the physical universe? Well, let me tell you about a very interesting symposium two or three years ago. I deal with it either in the Word of Flux or a forthcoming book. I'm not sure which one. In that symposium held at Princeton, the physicists and astrophysicists and mathematicians who were involved in the moonshot were discussing how it was done. They couldn't understand it. They said it's an impossibility. The whole idea of pinpointing a man on the moon, though we've done it, is impossible. Why? Because the way they did it was by mathematical computations which are a product of human logic. They must have been able to figure out exactly how that space vehicle was going to arrive at the moon at a particular point and land there. But you see, that presupposes an orderly universe which is God's creation. This they deny. And they were most insistent that mathematics and all sciences are simply the logic of the human mind. Have no relationship to brute factuality that 
to the outside universe, which is a meaningless, blind, sham product. How in the world could they then, through their logical computation, pinpoint a man on the moon? It couldn't be done, they said. It was not understandable. One man said, well, some people solve a problem by pocketing God. But he went on to infer that this was a cop-out. Now what can you learn from such science? Everything it does, it denies. And Gunther Stent, who is a molecular biologist at the University of California at Berkeley, says frankly in his book that science is going to disappear before too many generations. Because if everything is meaningless, what's the point of studying? He has no answer. He never once mentions God. That's the answer he won't look at. Now, can you see the difference between science in a Christian school and science in a secular school? There's a world of difference. Or history. There is no history teaching in the state school. There's social sciences. There's a world of difference. When a Christian school teaches history, its basic textbook has to be the Bible, by the way. In fact, you cannot, although very few historians will tell you this, reconstruct any of ancient history and its chronology apart from the Bible. The Bible is the basic book for dating everything before Christ. Moreover, it gives you the basic premises of history. That God created the earth, the whole universe, in terms of his sovereign purpose. He created man to exercise dominion and to make this God realm, God's kingdom. Man fell from that purpose and tried to establish the kingdom of man independent of God. Christ redeemed man and we just in terms of the promised land, it is the whole earth. That's why it's called the Great Commission as against the Commission to Joshua. Throughout history has a beginning. God created it. It has an end in the second coming. For the social sciences, history has no meaning. At a major university in California, a professor of history who was teaching the basic required introductory course in history got up a few years ago and told the entire class there is no such thing as history. History is a myth. There is no meaning, purpose, nor direction to life and what we call history. Therefore, the study of history is pointless, but the regents of the state of California pay me a passably good salary to teach history. Therefore, we will proceed with its study. Now, we cannot teach history from the same perspective. I mean, at all times, 
bear in mind that we believe history has a purpose, that purpose. Now, what is the point of social sciences then, which have replaced history? The social sciences have as their purpose the predestination of man by man. As against God's predestination and government of the universe, they are saying, we must have government, and therefore it will be man's government and man's predestination of the universe. It's the science of human control. This is why the social sciences teach socialism, totalitarianism, statism, the control of man by the state. Several years ago, I was in a symposium in uh, Northern California, I believe it was in San Jose or somewhere like that, or Palo Alto. At any rate, uh, Dr. Drakovich of uh, the Hoover Institution was, no, Senator Bradley from San Jose was presiding. Dr. Drakovich was one of the speakers, and I forget the third speaker. And I spoke about Christian schools as the necessary mandate for all Christians and as the greatest bulwark of freedom. And I appealed to all those who were there who had any element of conservatism in them that you're not going to defend freedom in this country without the Christian schools. Well, it was a very crowded auditorium and naturally everybody who was there had strong feelings one way or another and not all of them could get their questions asked or make their statements. When it was over, this one woman, I found out she was a teacher, I think fourth grade, about 30 years old, came charging up to me with blood in her eyes. And she accused me of being a quack and misleading the people and so on by talking about freedom. Why? These were her exact words. In the modern world, freedom is obsolete. Well, now she was a very intelligent and a very logical woman, and granted her presuppositions, she was right. The only way you can have any government in the universe is through man, because there's no God to give a purpose. Therefore, the only way man can govern is through scientific control of man and society. You cannot have a planned scientific experiment in society unless you control all factors. Therefore, in the modern world, freedom is obsolete. You see, you cannot hop between two opinions. If God be God, if Christ is Lord, then you must separate yourself from everything that constitutes secular education. You must not only have a Christian school, but you must have a Christian philosophy for every subject. And we're not going to see any future for Christianity apart from the Christian school that is systematic in its application of Christian principles to every subject.
You're all familiar, of course, with the fact that nowadays spelling and uh, grammar are despised in many of the avant-garde public schools. And they tell us that such things are purely arbitrary. Are they? Do you know there are theological foundations for grammar? Someday I hope we can get somebody who will do some good writing on that subject. What are the theological foundations for grammar? Do you know that there are many languages that have no past and future tense? They're existential languages. It's only a present. You go through an involved circumlocution to state that something happened yesterday or something's going to happen tomorrow. There's no clear-cut past tense and future tense. Now, some of those languages are on cultures that were once great. They lack the future because they become relativistic. China, for example, was a world leader long before Europe was even remotely civilized while they were having human sacrifices as a routine thing all over Europe. But China drifted into a relativistic existential philosophy. And it became stagnant. Logic theology are basic to grammar. Your faith works itself out in your language. It creates a structure in terms of that language. We have a language that is theological. It's been shaped by 15, 16, 18 centuries of Christianity. It's been molded by it. And it's become a superb instrument for Christian thinking. It has to be preserved. Incidentally, let me put in a plug here for the King James Version. It's a very important aspect of education. Why? Because the King James Version, which I believe was a translation of the best text of the Bible, and if you're interested in the subject, I can recommend an excellent book, also chose a language that was as old-fashioned when the King James Version was first published as it is now, perhaps more so then. But it was a basic English for the fundamental structure that would give a character to the language. Now, what do modern translations do? Well, there are hints that some of the socialist Marxist countries may favor modern translations up to a limited point. They certainly don't favor the older one. The minute you, for example, in the United States, destroy the reading of the King James, you destroy the ability of the child to read Milton, 
of Shakespeare, or any of the great literature in the English language. Now, we're doing that stupidly and unconsciously. But in the Soviet Union, they're doing it deliberately. They're separating people from their Russian Bible or their Armenian Bible or whatever translation, the Hungarian Bible and so on, because those old basic type translations which aimed for a fundamental language and which have shaped the language through the years are also the key to the heritage of the past, to the great writings of the past, to the theology of the past. So when you destroy the Luther's Bible and the King James Version and replace them with others, you close the door to yesterday and you create a ruthless, existential man. Beautiful. Very simple, isn't it? <laughs> or the teaching of literature. I was speaking at a Christian school not too long ago where they were having a great deal of trouble with a minister's daughter who was teaching literature and she was trying to bring into the school some humanistic classics. Very lovely girl. Very impressive. But unaware of the distinction. What is a classic? Well, the definition of a classic changes in terms of one's faith. Men through the centuries have changed their ideas of what constitutes a classic. Dead works have been revived, and very important works have died. Because the classic represents something that epitomizes a faith, a way of life, a view of life. Recently, I read what was one of the great classics of the world, according to many scholars, the tale of few, a Vietnamese classic, a poem, an epic poem. Very, very moving, and it's only beautiful, but very dangerous, because the fundamental thesis of that work is that God is cruel and heartless, the world is an ugly place. Man is a victim. The death is stopped. The dice are loaded. And what it encourages in someone, because it's a very moving work, is a tremendous self-pity. A tremendous self-pity. You can see how a book like that, which is known to everyone in Vietnam, would mold the national character. And it's still an automatic defeatism. Perhaps it's good that Marxism has taken over in the province of God to smash the philosophy that is so basic to the Vietnamese. They're not an inferior people. They're a remarkable people. But the philosophy that is there is one that is destructive. Now, through classics, we can instill a dangerous philosophy. We have to choose. 
we have to be careful. For example, a writer that I like, although I disagree with radically, is Jack London. Jack London's books are very often used in public schools and in Christian schools. He's a very interesting writer and a tremendously exciting man. I like his life story. Incidentally, he was also beginning to lose his socialism in his old age, and that's why well, he never really got old. He died before he was really old. But the socialists burned down his new home when he started to quit financing everything they did, and he may have been poisoned by them. Jack London, however, in all his writings, and they're exciting books, called The Wild and the Others, has a fundamental philosophy, Darwinism. A conflict of interest, dog-eat-dog universe, every man and every dog for himself. Once in a while, there's somebody who'll be friendly out there and give you a pat, but you stand alone. It instills a very dangerous philosophy. While Lewis Stevenson was not Christian in any evangelical sense, but he was brought up in terms of old-fashioned Calvinism. So the thing he can never wrote some of the writer's novels is he has a doctrine of predestination woven through everything dovetails. Everything works out. You don't feel bitter at the end if somebody gets away from with something. You want to let Treasure Island know that. Do you feel upset that Long John Silver escapes with some of the gold at the end? No. Because it leaves you with a feeling that there's a judgment and everybody's going to get his from God sooner or later. Now, Stevenson did that in spite of himself. He couldn't get over his basic training. He was brought up in a very strictly Christian atmosphere, Christian schooling, and so on. So he could never get away from it. You see what I mean? You're teaching a faith through the books you assign to children. Be careful that that faith is not destructive. The book will never take a stand against the Lord. But called the wild, the wild teaches a totally different philosophy. I'm sorry Jack London isn't on our side. I personally like him better than a great many like Robert Louis Stevenson. But he isn't on our side. And his books to immature youth will instill the wrong philosophy. But to continue, our faith says that every area of life and thought is the law. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So that we can never think politically or economically or in any field apart from the Word of God. Now this means, of course, we have to develop textbooks in all these areas from a Christian point of view, and we don't have that. The Christian school is handicapped at this point. This is one thing we hope to encourage and get done as the Lord provides the means. I, for one, hope if my 
some can help me in it because history is his field to uh, write a history of the United States from a Christian point of view. Because the Christian versus anti-Christian impulse is very clear in American history. The very beginning, there were two kinds of people who came here. Those who said we will here establish God's dominion, God's kingdom, and use it as the base for the conversion of the whole world. And we have been the great missionary nation of all history, haven't we? There were others who said, this is the new world where we will find men unspoiled, the Indians, by sin, by meaning by Christian teaching. And this can be the basis for a new garden of Eden without God and without Christ. A naturalistic paradise. Both motives are very prominent in American history. They've been at war. They can be easily traced, but this is a part of our history that is ignored. It's interesting, somebody wrote me, and I just answered the letter today, about the Christian aspects of the War of Independence, and I recommended Alan Heimer's The American Mind, but this is for advanced reading. We asked, is there any book written other than Carl Weidenbaugh's Migrant about the Christian background. Weidenberg isn't the best writer in the world. He does state very broadly that the religious aspect is basic to an understanding of the war of independence. And one of the real reasons why they went to war was to resist the idea of bishops being imposed on them from England. They wanted to know why Bridenbaugh hadn't written more on the subject. And I said, well, Bridenbaugh didn't write more because he spent his life turning out the kind of thing the academic community wanted. From another professor who's been on a faculty or two with Bridenbaugh, I had learned some few years back, that Bridenbaugh hoped that his alma mater, Harvard, would invite him. And only when he gave up hope, and he was near retirement virtually, that he finally produced a book that told the truth about a little aspect of our history and how important the Christian motivation was. Most of them won't touch it. They won't deal with it at all. It has to be dealt with. But I said at the beginning that basic to the confession that Jesus is Lord is this principle. It means that every aspect of life is under the Lord. He is the umbrella that covers everything. So that you cannot think in any sphere of life or thought, any of the arts or sciences, apart from biblical principles. But you have to apply them systematically. On the other hand, humanism says, in every era, we must affirm the lordship of scientific man, the scientific socialist planner. He wrote up the plan for every era. This is why, ultimately, it will be a battle for survival for the Christian school. 
Peter teaches Christ is love, Jesus is love, or else Caesar will say finally, no one has any right, no to teach any children except the state. This April, there was a symposium on this matter of the legal aspect of education and the freedom of Christian education in the United States at the law school of the University of Notre Dame. I was one of the, I think, three speakers there. The audience was the law faculty, the students, and the number of professors and lawyers from here and there who came to the meeting. The evening address was to have been given, summing up the conference, by a Supreme Court Justice. He declined. And every other judge they asked declined, and all had a common reason. They said, in the next decade, we expect that this will be the major kind of case we will be trying cases with regard to will the Christian school be allowed to exist or not. And therefore, for us to take part in this meeting and to make an address would be to disqualify ourselves at a later date. Now, you had better realize where the battle line is. Far more important than the church to the future of our faith is the Christian school. It's the critical point. This Ohio case is being followed all over the country, not by the press, but by educators. I learned about a month and a half ago that in one state, a state senator made a statement that in every state the departments of education were following the Ohio situation and if the Ohio Department of Education won, states across the country would move against the Christian school. The sad fact is in Ohio only about 70 to 75 of the schools are making a stand. The others are ready to compromise. Well, we can still teach Bible. What they're saying is, we'll teach two religions, humanism and Christianity. They've already denied Christ. Jesus is Lord, not Jesus. The early church died for that faith. This is why we have the freedom that we do. William Carroll Barkin is book on the origins of the medieval world says that the frontier thinkers of Western civilization were some of those early church fathers. And it was because of this faith, Jesus is Lord. Now the question is, will we stand in terms of that? Will we say with our whole heart-minded being, without thinking, in our schools, in every area of life, Jesus 
is lost. Are there any questions now? Yes. Christians who are anti-Christian people, you know, you know what I mean? It seems among the Christian people there's more of a, of a, you know, a wall against Christian schools and all than there are among people in the world. Oh, yes. And the reason for that world is that they don't have a plan of godliness, but none of the pile there are. So these Christians are against Christian schools. They do not want to be involved because don't make us make a stand. It's nice just to sit in church and uh, play at being a Christian. But if you make us feel guilty of our children are not in Christian schools or we're not supporting Christian schools, then we'll have to take a stand and we may find ourselves outside the faith. You see, today, church people are compromising in every area. They're compromising with regard to Christian schools. They're compromising with regard to abortion. They're compromising with regard to the sexual revolution. And let me say that that's one of the most fearful things. The number of letters I get regularly from people because the sexual revolution is being taught in evangelical churches. It's all as long as it's between Christians who love each other. Or homosexuality. That's another issue they're not taking a stand on. On politics. On economics. You name it. They want to compromise with everything and still claim to be Christ. In fact, I've encountered quite a segment of people across the country who say that if you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, that makes you a Christian. It doesn't. I've said, Thou bear fruit shall we know then. A good tree brings forth good fruit. We're supposed to judge those who don't make the stand and say, we're not of the world. And if they say, oh, we have no right to judge, our Lord said, with what measure you need out, it shall be measured unto you. Don't use your own standards. But our Lord also said, I never heard this quoted by anybody, judge righteous judgment. You see? So, these Christians, so-called, who oppose Christian schools, are really saying, don't make me stand in terms of the faith because I won't. Yes? Would you explain from Genesis 1 the cultural mandate? Because I don't think a lot of people really understand what that is. Yeah. That's kind of uh, one of the things I think you covered in a way. But yeah. Could you cover it from creation and right. talk about the and talk about the redemption? Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, deals with the creation of man, and God said, Let us make man in our own image, and then man's calling to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. 
right in your own midst, learn how to govern yourselves because you're going to govern the world and this is a good training ground, your problem between yourselves. So the creation mandate means that the Christian, in our Lord's words, is to occupy till I come. To go out and occupy every area of life and thought for him. And in our time, the critical place is the Christian school. Yes. Um, my question is take them back to that fact. God had a purpose in all of this. Where have we gone wrong? And what have we done right? If you begin with that and then remind yourself, you can type out a little memo of some of these verses. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world from the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 as well as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and so on. So that it'll be a reminder to you to bring these points into the mind of the children. And it's not only American history that God created in terms of his sovereign purpose, but them, each one of them, they have to find themselves in terms of that. Yeah. Um, many of us, not just in our secular education, but in our very churches, or whatever our spiritual input is that kind of thing, have been encouraged that the world is Satan, you know, it's Satan's domain, you might say, and that, uh, <coughs> and further that, uh, we've heard, I've heard so often Colossians too, in fact, I was really admired by one very popular uh, speaker at one time on Colossians 2, 8. Beware lest any man flow into philosophy and then you see after you could be a good man after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. 
and used his text to admonish a group of my friends and I who were taking some uh, philosophy classes to not, the, the philosophy itself as a discipline was something that was of the world along with all of the other disciplines in effect, I think. And that uh, I was wondering if you could comment, you brought up the term philosophy quite a bit. So apparently you think that there could be, that there is indeed a Christian philosophy. Yeah. That philosophy in itself is not wrong. It's that you must have Christian presuppositions. Right. And secondly, uh, you need to design a philosophy before, you know, as a foundation for every discipline. Is a you know, do you need to start there? And if so, is there a sort of a grand philosophy of Christian education that overrides all of those disciplines? And could you perhaps comment on that and offer some uh, sources or sources? Yeah. All right. First of all, Paul warns against vain philosophy. Not against philosophy as such. And we have too much careless reading of Scripture by ministers. In fact, uh, one of the things that has always irritated me is that you actually find churches that warn against the wearing of gold ornaments. And they cite Peter, forbidding such things, the plating of hair, the wearing of gold ornaments. My wife has the gold ornament there that I gave her. <laughs> uh, now, that's a silly reading of the text because the text also goes on to speak of dress. What's the answer? Go nudist? <laughs> that isn't what Peter was talking about. What he said was that a woman should not put her trust in the hairstyle or in her gold ornaments or her clothing. He didn't say strip yourself of all these things and go around naked and then you're a properly humble Christian woman. <laughs> You see, what uh, this kind of silly exegesis, or eisegesis it is, turns the scripture into nonsense. Now, philosophy has a very central place. What is philosophy? It is simply taking the premises of scripture and working out their implication for every realm. There are two kinds of philosophy that you can have. The great names here from the Middle Ages are Anselm and Abelard. Abelard, the rationalist, who said, my autonomous mind is basic. I must understand before I believe, so that all things must be judged by me, my mind. He made himself God. Now, all modern philosophy stems right out of Abelard. Abelard took that principle out of Greek and Roman philosophy. But what did St. Anselm say? He said, I believe in order that I may understand. So he said, first, I come to philosophy with a total presupposition of the word of God as the word of the infallible God. Believing that, then I can understand everything. If I don't believe that, then I can understand nothing. Now, my word of flux, which is a philosophical study of epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, I deal precisely with this point. 
And what I do is to begin with Descartes and come to the present through the whole stream of modern philosophy and show how by beginning with Abelard, in effect, they end up saying they can know nothing. When you deny God, ultimately, if you're honest, you cannot know anything. You're just locked up in your own mind and the world out there isn't even real anymore. John Paul Sartre is the logical conclusion of such a philosophy, existentialism. The only thing that is real is my existence and I don't even have a nature. There is no law except my will, my lust. So Sartre has to say, between two existentialists, one the prime minister of a country and the other a wino, the wino is the better existentialist, because he doesn't care about anything outside of himself. Sartre condemned himself, really. He said, for me, my neighbor is the devil. If I'm God, my neighbor has to be the devil. You can't have two gods. And in one of his plays, he titled it, No Exit, existentialist man is in a world all by himself. There's no exit. He is in hell. He can't get out. He doesn't know whether the door is locked or unlocked. There are several of them there, and they're all talking to each other. That's a perfect picture of hell. No community. Total existentialism. But uh, today, that means to just get away from the world instead of having to do anything, to get away from the church, yeah. because then we we'll say, and we can minister to one another and think about yeah. Christ coming and just work on our policy and as some people call it our uh, prayer closet. Yeah. Well, isn't that a, right? That's very commonplace, and I'll tell you what it is. It's medievalism. Mm -hmm. A Catholic uh, political scientist. Uh, Count Eric von Kunelt-Ledin has said that uh, the best examples of medievalism today are Protestants, Bible-believing Protestants. Why? They've turned the church into a convent and monastery. The only difference between the medieval monks and nuns is that they're married, but they withdraw from the world and into the church and say, don't bother us with anything like Christian schools or with any problems or with politics or with economics or with a sexual revolution. Everything's all right as long as we're here inside the monastery or the convent. That is not Christianity. I don't believe the medieval monks and nuns by and large were Christian. In fact, most of them were put there because their families didn't want to provide money for the girls to have a dowry and get married. And the boys were put there because they didn't want them to have a portion of the inheritance. They wanted just the one son to have the inheritance undivided. And they put the younger sons into a monastery or make priests out of them. So, believe me, they didn't have much faith. Yes. Oh, that's the world. You 
oh, well, you're just copying out. You know, you're putting a few Bible verses in it. And where do we radically oppose the world and show the Christians in the church that this is, you can have dominion over it as mm -hmm. God's children? Yeah. It isn't easy because you're pioneers, you see. But you mentioned art, for example. The artist in the modern world is the substitute for the prophets of the Bible. He's a lawless man because law means nothing. He's above law. He has the new infallible word. In the Middle Ages, the Christian artist was not an artist. He was an artisan. He was a Christian whose business or calling happened to be sculptor or painting or something else. There was nothing flighty about him. He was a Christian doing his business. Now, as we teach art, for example, we have to stress the fact that you're an artisan, it's a business, it's a calling. We're not here trying to uh, inspire men or anything. We're here to do our work as God wants us in this particular field. Yes? As you look at Christian Reconstruction, do you see uh, a Puritan attempt to reform and stay within as the solution? Or do you see perhaps a pilgrim ethic of separating and starting over? I say in terms of those of us gathered here, are we going to go back and reform or are we going to move out and declare ourselves separate and start over. Uh, in what sphere? Are you talking about the church or uh, the... Primarily the church at this point. Yes. The school is the foregone conclusion. The school you've already separated. Right. Yes. In essence, that's what you have to do. The public school, you can't reform it. Its presuppositions are statist and they're humanistic. Now, with the church, by and large, the churches of today are humanistic. In some cases, it'll depend on the local church. You can possibly reform it. In the majority of cases, I'm afraid it's going to mean rebuilding. I'm not happy about saying that. I know some churches that were better than average and some very fine young men who went in there and tried to do something were uh, kicked out. In fact, uh, we know very well one closely associated with us who speaks for us occasionally. And he was teaching the college-age class in this particular church. The problem in the class was, uh, the problems in the class were sons of church officers who were on pot. And he plainly told the church officers and the pastors that their sons needed converting. And he was told he didn't understand. They were converted as far as the parents were concerned, and it was none of his business to question. He was being pharisaic and censorious. He said, well, I cannot reconcile a profession of faith with boasting about being on pot and being a problem in a Sunday school class. So he got kicked out. Now, he wasn't trying to separate himself, but he had to. The ironic fact is he is now associate assistant pastor in an ultra-modernist church 
two churches asked him one, uh, uh, to be assistant pastor. One was a fundamentalist Baptist church and the other an ultra-modernist Methodist church, both big churches. And he said, there's going to be an explosion at either place. <laughs> but he said, at least when I speak in the Methodist church, they'll know. And the first meeting he went there, they had a picnic and the youth were singing dirty songs and the pastor and the others didn't see anything wrong with it. He said, at least they'll know when I open my mouth the first time they're not Christian. And that'll be a big step forward. <laughs> I'm afraid very often we will have to separate ourselves, but not always. Yes? Yeah. You know, I think, too, in answering that question, I, uh, I, you're kind of coming out of the tradition that's known as Calvinism, mm-hmm. and you're kind of being telling us a little in essence what that meant and some of us aren't Calvinists and really know very little about it so not to run back to churches and separate you've got to have reasons you know you have to have a reason for starting a Christian school there's more than just you know we're starting a Christian school because the world messed up out there there's real biblical presupposition Yeah, I had to separate myself from a Calvinistic church and most of them were scared to death of me uh and Dorothy and I knew we would ultimately have to leave, but we said, let them do the pushing. Let them do the pushing. Well, it was really funny, the uh, excuse they found to try to kick me out. The grounds were that I was teaching the Word of God outside of the church on the Lord's Day. Can you imagine a more fearful offense? Well, of course, they couldn't make it stick, and they looked so silly in the process, they had to quit me, and then I walked out, which made them very angry because they wanted to find something to condemn me. Then they could say I was a condemned man, you see, in a bad character. They're still saying it, but they don't have a good conscience in doing it, I suspect. So I didn't make the break in that case. They did. So I had to break with my background and tradition. They were Pharisaic, they were self-righteous, they thought they had a corner on the truth and nobody else did. They were ready to mouth the right doctrines, but never to apply them. They were hearers, not doers. Yes? I've been asked two questions. Um, first, I have also big questions. First of all, you mentioned, of course, you said several times that Christian education is more critical than uh, it's the most critical area. Yeah. Now, Kristen, um, getting more critical than the family or church, and I know you probably, I don't know what you mean that or not, but could you put that in perspective? And then a second part of the question is, what did the early church do? In other words, uh, by means of example to us, uh, their goals, how did they uh, operate in this All right. Um, uh, those are excellent questions. Let's see, what was the first part of it now? I'll try to keep more Oh, yes, all right. Let me answer that, and then we'll take the second about the early church. In case I forget the second part, be sure to remind me, because they're both important. First of all, in terms of Scripture, the basic institution is the family. Not church, state, or school. It's the family. And I'd like to go into what Scripture teaches about the family, because... It's never taught normally, but I'll do that on another occasion if you'd like to come up again. 
And so we're trying to go into it. the basics of biblical laws. They affect the family and society. All right. Now, in our day, however, it isn't that the school has become more important than the family, but in terms of the battle, it's the school that is the critical point. It's the school which is going to help save the family and the church and Christian society as a whole. It is the cutting edge. It's the battalion. It's the army. So in terms of the battle of our day, of this turning point of history, this is as important and more important, our era, than the fall of the Roman Empire and the end of the Middle Ages. We are in on the biggest and most important era of all history. And the Christian school, in terms of that battle, is the key institution. Yes. Okay, so granted that, and this, this is sort of comes right in line with another question I had too. Okay, so the early church, then, is the, I mean, the, the uh, school, then, is the cutting edge you mentioned. Yeah. Um, how is this, how is this consistent with the early church? In other words, did, do you see fine history today? I'm not trying to be sarcastic, yeah. but the day begins school, and the second part of that, it's been mm-hmm. mentioned you have a very uh, battle, I've had battles for survival in quotes, you know, sort of a very life and death matter. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe really, to be hopeless, or what do you, what do you see? In other words, is there victory assured? Uh, you know, I think in the short run, let's say in the next 10, 15 years, it's bleak. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think we're going to win. I believe the modern era, the age of the humanistic state is collapsing. It's dying all around us. Now, we can go into a dark age if we as Christians don't stand up and make a fight. But the modern era, humanism, is so bankrupt. If we do anything, people are going to come to us. Why in the world should a college professor who's an important public figure as well involved in politics in Scotland want to come all the way over here at his own expense. And why is a member of parliament writing to me every so often and very important people all over the world? Because we have something to say about the world collapsing and what God's solutions to it are. And they're hungry. I found it easier to talk to congressmen, I don't get a big crowd out, 40 or 50 of them, but they're the best audience of all because they see how desperate it is. And they're badly frightened. They're upset by what they're seeing. Everything is so insane. And one of the congressmen at the last meeting was standing, uh, sitting across, he's going to be a senator soon, a table from me, and he kept telling a lot of stories and he said, you know, I, I'm always hunting for good jokes and whatnot because he said, if I didn't have something to laugh, I'd go crazy. And something to laugh over, I'd go crazy. The situation is so bad. It's so sickening. Now, people like that are ready to hear. Now, the early church. We don't appreciate how deep the roots of the early church in the Old Testament 
are, first of all, the early church was mainly a, a Jewish church. For the first century, most of the members were Jews. So they carried over the Old Testament law and practices into the church. The elder, well, the elder in the Old Testament was a ruler in terms of the law. The elders were named. Now, they were strong for tithing. They were strong for taking care of strangers. Hospitality, you read about that in the New Testament. We know that Rome finally legislated against the Christians because one of the ways they were growing was to rescue babies that were abandoned. If they couldn't have bought them soon enough, they couldn't get rid of them, and they would, after they were born, take and deposit them under the bridges of Rome or in other cities elsewhere to die. And the Christians would go rescue them and rear them. It was a good way of uh, having the church grow by leaps and bounds so that... Uh, it became an embarrassment to the Romans. You know, Christians are doing something we don't do. So they finally forbade it because it was so embarrassing. But they couldn't make a stick. They were taking care of their own and sometimes were helpful to outsiders as well. So they were acquiring a reputation as the only people who could do anything. They were also, they didn't have... We don't know much about their education, so we don't have sufficient information, but they did have some method or other of seeing to it that their children were brought up in the faith and were given a basic education. Now, the evidence there is very fragmentary, but they did apparently take care of it. It would be possible to go on and cite one area after another where they were very, very important. First of all, by the sheer fact of their character, they made themselves useful even to those who were persecuting them. Now, Tertullian, when he wrote to the emperor telling him how wrong it was to persecute the Christians, said, we are the most honest taxpayers, the best soldiers, the best public servants you have. St. Paul writes, in Romans and sends his greetings to them that are of Caesar's household. Do you remember that? You can translate household better as 